We're going to be in two different books today, the Old Testament book of Leviticus and the New Testament book of Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the chair in front of you, or you can just follow along on the screen or listen as I read. But I want to begin with this insight, something I read this week. It said, until recently, the only way to study how caterpillar changes into a butterfly was to cut open the chrysalis or x-ray it, both with fatal results. But a recent issue of National Geographic reported on new micro-CT scans that show how metamorphosis takes place. Metamorphosis is a radical change in form and function. Many animals go through the process. Excuse me, frogs, sea urchins, wasps, beetles. I think my, my voice was just metamorphosizing there. But most of us know about metamorphosis from caterpillars that become butterflies. Yet scientists are only beginning to grasp the miracle of what goes on in a chrysalis. New research shows that the insect's makeover is a mix of destruction of old ways of being and thinking combined with brand new ways of being and thinking. The article notes, certain cells die and body parts atrophy. Meanwhile, other cells, in place since birth, rapidly expand. The adult emerges completely remodeled, capable of flight, and possessing a completely rewired brain. I read that this week, and I thought, that is sanctification. That is what God is doing in those who believe in him and call him Lord and Savior on a daily, moment-by-moment basis in our lives. And that's our word for today. We're talking about Jehovah Mekodishkem. It's a 12-letter word. It's great in Scrabble or words with friends, and it impresses people because we've never heard it before. But it's literally the God who sanctifies us, the God who transforms us into his image. And we're going to talk about how that happens today, how that's possible. I love what Oswald Chambers says about this in his book, my utmost for his highest, is devotional. He says, sanctification is not my idea of what God wants to do for me. It's sanctification is God's idea of what he wants to do for me. So many times we have plans of what we think God should do or what we want him to do, but God has his own plans and his own purposes and his own intentions of what He is doing in each one of our lives, what he's creating and how he is using us. God sanctifies us. He transforms us by setting us apart from sin and from unrighteousness for himself and for his purposes. And this involves aligning our spirit with the spirit of Christ that indwells us as he makes us unique and holy, as he makes us a new creation. One of the first verses I memorized as a little kid, actually I was a camper at Wagon Train, 2 Corinthians 5.17, when someone becomes a Christian, they become a brand new person inside, they are not the same anymore, a new life has begun. I memorized it in the New Living Translation, or actually back then it was good news for modern men was the translation back then, it was kind of living translation. When someone becomes a Christian, they become a brand new person inside, they are not the same anymore, a new life has begun. And that's what we're talking about today. We need to understand that when God sanctifies us, it's much more and it's much deeper than merely outward conformity to external rules and regulations. It's not about do this, follow this, 
And if you do this to the T, then you'll be sanctified and cleansed and righteous. It's much deeper than that. It begins with God changing us in our spirit, literally in our soul. And then his transformation continues out from there, affecting every part of our being in our body. That's the, the comprehensive change and transformation that God desires to bring about as he sanctifies us. As you read scripture, you'll find that everything in the Bible can be divided into three categories. There's the common or the ordinary, that's one. There's the profane and there's the sacred. The common, the profane, and the sacred. Everything in life and in scripture can be divided into that. God created some things as common, as regular, as ordinary. There's nothing special about them. They simply exist for the general welfare and good of others. The profane refers to things that are polluted or defiled or contaminated. Destructive actions, attitudes, and people fall into this category. And then finally, the profane, I mean the, the sacred, is something that is special to God and reflects his glory. God's presence, his sanctions, and his purposes are examples of things that are sacred. So the common, the profane, and the sacred. We see that throughout Scripture. And as we read Scripture, we discover that things that are common or ordinary or regular remain common until they either become profane or sacred. Common is like a, a neutral zone where things are neither bad nor good. They're just as they are. But once something becomes set apart for, for God and for his purposes, it's no longer profane. It's no longer common. It's no longer ordinary. It might have been corrupt before, or it might have been neutral before, but now it's sanctified, and it has God's blessing. That's a powerful thing, and that's really the testimony of each and every one of us that has gone from being average and ordinary or absolutely defiled and corrupt and polluted because of our sinful nature to knowing God and having a relationship with him. I like what Bob Goff uh, says in his book, Love Does. He says, I do all of my best thinking on Tom Sawyer Island at Disneyland. Genius idea. There's a picnic table at the end of a little pier right across from the pirate ship. I suppose most people think this place is just a prop because there's a couple of wooden kegs marked gunpowder and some pirate paraphernalia hung over the railings, but it's not just a prop for me. It's my office. There's no admission requirements on Tom Sawyer Island. It doesn't matter how tall or short you are, how old or young you are. You can do countless things there. And most of them involve running and jumping and using your creativity and imagination. It's a place where you can go and just do stuff. In that way, it's a place that mirrors life well, at least the opportunity to do much more with our lives. Somewhere in each of us, I believe there's a desire for a place like Tom Sawyer Island, a place where the stuff of imagination, whimsy, and wonder are easier to live out, not just think about, to put off until next time. This is a weighty thing to think about on my island, but I often consider what I'm tempted to call the greatest lie of all time. And that lie can be bound up in two words, someone else. 
on Tom Sawyer Island, I reflect on God who didn't choose someone else to express his creative presence to the world, who didn't tap the rock star or the popular kid to get things done. He chose you and me. We are the means, the method, the object, and the delivery vehicles. God can use anyone for sure. And if you can shred, play on a Fender or a guitar, or if you've won best personality, you're not disqualified. It just doesn't make you more qualified. I love that. You see, God chooses ordinary people like us to get things done. And it, it's fascinating if you look throughout Scripture, God always chose the least likely people because then it became so clear that when something got accomplished, when a victory was, was won or secured, it was so clear that God was the one behind that and not the individual with all the charisma or all the power or all the popularity. God has a way of choosing things that are ordinary and common to accomplish his purposes. And I want to talk about the God who sanctifies us today in three simple ideas or categories. And they're written for you on the outline again so that you don't have to write them down. You can just fill in notes around them according to what's meaningful. And it's simple. I want to start with God's holy standard today. That's the place we always have to begin with his word and with his holy standard. And next I want to talk about God's fulfillment of that standard through Jesus. And then I want to talk about our response. Now the funny thing is, I've done this with a number of people and groups. We just did it Friday morning with the men's group, 6.30 in the back room. You're willing to join us every, every Friday morning, 6.30 to 7.30 before work. And the tendency of every person in every group is they want to skip past number one and get to number two. They want to go from God's standard to the solution and to the answer. Because God's standard is, is tough. It, it kind of beats us up. It, when we look at God's standard, we come away thinking, I am in deep trouble. Like, I, I've, I've got a lot of issues. I've got a lot of problems. And I don't measure up very well at all. But friends... We can't skip over that. It's so essential that we start there because the gospel means nothing if Jesus died on a cross to merely enhance our lives, to, to, to merely make us a better version of ourselves. We were lost in sin. We were dying. We were headed toward destruction, and Jesus rescued us. That is the gospel message. And every sermon, every every study of God's word should lead us to that point of desperation where we go, I'm in deep trouble. And then Jesus is presented and what he's already done for us. And we go, oh, thank God for Jesus. Thank you, God, for Jesus. And then we talk about our response. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start with God's holy standard. Jen Wilkin in her book, In His Image, says, simply put, God's will for your life is that you be holy. That's it. Simple. That you live a life of set-apartness. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you strive for utter purity of character. Every admonition contained in all of Scripture can be reduced to this. Every warning, every law, every encouragement bows to this overarching purpose. Every story of every figure in every corner of every book of the Bible is chanting this call. Be holy, 
for I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. Now, kind of getting off here for a moment, I did some deep thought this week about, you know, is there a practical side to God desiring us to be holy? Because for a lot of us, it's like, can't God just accept me the way I am? You know, he's full, so full of grace and love. Can't he just be cool with me and all of my baggage and my stuff? Does he really have to change me and transform me? It's kind of like God saying, you got to go to the cotillion and learn proper etiquette and manners. Otherwise, I can't, I can't stand to be around you. You're just embarrassing. You know, that's kind of how we look at holiness and righteousness. And, and I don't want to get into this, but I am convinced that someday when we get to heaven, we are going to learn and realize that on a very practical real physical sense, what Paul says in Romans 8 is true, that the mindset in the flesh brings about death and destruction, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace in Christ Jesus. And that literally, when we live outside of God's will, we are working death in our lives. We are bringing about destruction. We, we are fighting against ourselves, but that as we live in this perfect will and surrendered in obedience to what his word says, it's life-giving. It breathes like new life and reconciliation and, and newness within us. And I believe that's what's happening on a practical level. The Hebrew word for sanctify is the word kadesh. It appears hundreds of times in the Old Testament. But the compound connection Jehovah Mekodishkem only appears twice. It appears in Leviticus and Exodus. Leviticus 20 Exodus 31. Leviticus 20, verses 7 and 8 says, You shall consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart, therefore, and be holy. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Exodus 31, 13. Tell the people of Israel, Be careful to keep my Sabbath day, for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. It is given so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. These are the two places, the only two places in all of Scripture where Jehovah Mekadishchem is mentioned, the God who sanctifies us. Later on in Leviticus 20, God explained in greater detail some of the statutes that he expected his people to follow and obey. Leviticus 20, 22 to 26. You must keep all of my decrees and regulations by putting them into practice. Notice how it's not just enough to know them, we have to put them into practice and live them. Otherwise, the land to which I am bringing you as your new home will vomit you up. Kind of graphic. Don't live according to the customs of the people I am driving out before you. It's because they do these shameful things that I detest them. But I have promised you, you will possess their land because I will give it to you as your possession, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from all the other people. Verse 25. You must therefore make a distinction between ceremonially clean and unclean animals, between clean and unclean birds, and you must not defile yourselves by eating any unclean animal or bird or creature that scurries along the ground. I have identified them as being unclean for you. Finally, verse 26, you must be holy because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from all the other people to be my very own. 
That's God's holy standard. I could give tons more verses from the Old Testament that spell it out, but you get the picture and you get the idea. I want to spend a moment talking about ways that we can respond to God's holy standard. This is still point number one, but there's a lot of ways that we can react to God's holy standard. The first is that we can reject it. Who, who is God to make the rules? Who, who does he think he is? You know, I, I'm going to make up my own way, you know. I'm going to work out something that works for me. Like, who does he think he is? And a lot of people do that, you know. Who is God to set the standard and the rules? Who knows if he even exists? And if he does, it seems like he's got a lot of work to do in the world. There's a lot of things that I've noticed that he needs to attend to. You know, he's not living up to my expectations, so we reject it. Secondly, we can dismiss it as unattainable. Like, why even try? His standard is so high and so unattainable. Like, why even put out the effort? And so what we usually do is we revise it. We edit it. You know? We, according to our preferences and our tolerances. And the funny thing is that when we do that, it, it takes the shape and this form where we apply grace to ourselves and judgment to everybody else. You know, oh, well, this, this doesn't really mean that for me, but for you it does. And you better do that or you're, you're fried. But we apply the utmost of grace to ourselves and the highest standard for other people. That's usually the slippery slope of revising it and changing it. And this is clearly wrong. I, I like what uh, Barbara Taylor says in her book, An Altar in the World. She says, the problem is many of the people in need of saving are in churches. And at least part of what they need saving from is the idea that God sees everything the same way they do. We have this tendency to think that God's my buddy. He just agrees with me. He affirms everything that I believe, everything I think, you know, He's just my big attaboy, you know? Rather than the God who challenges me to mature and to grow up beyond my narrow-minded prejudices and judgments and narrow way of thinking. You know, it, for many of us as Christians, we, we can't even fathom a God who would challenge us and draw us beyond what we're comfortable and and. and what we already believe. He's just the God who affirms us. Well, the final option, well, another option here is we can accept it intellectually, but we can live a different way, and that's kind of like number two. You know, we, we don't argue it, we don't reject it, we, we accept it intellectually, but then we end up living something less than his holy standard. The, the final option I want to throw out, and the best option, is we can accept what Jesus has already done for us. We can accept what he has already done on our behalf. And friends, that's the essence of the gospel. The gospel is not about what we need to do to experience God's grace and salvation. It's about what Jesus has already done for us as a free gift by grace through faith. We either accept that or we reject it. We cannot add to that. We cannot approve upon that. Scripture says all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Our best efforts do not cut it. They do not meet God's holy requirement. So we either accept what Jesus did for us on the cross, or we try and find a different way. And that's point number two. God's fulfillment of his holy standard is Jesus. 
God's fulfillment of the holy standard. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. All of what God required us and commanded us to do is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all that was written in the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. And Jesus is the one who accomplishes it for us. All scripture bears witness to Jesus. Even Moses wrote about Christ. John chapter 5, 39 and 46, Jesus said to the religious leaders of the day, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Like you believe Moses and you're rejecting me. But Moses wrote about me. He prophesied about me. He predicted everything that I would do, that I would come to fulfill. How can you miss it? I'm right in front of you. All scripture points to Christ and is fulfilled in him. Luke chapter 24, that beautiful chapter after the resurrection of Jesus, he meets the two disciples, sorry, on the road to Emmaus, and it says in Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Jesus explained scripture to the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus through the lens of himself, Everything took on a new shape, and it made sense. All of Scripture made sense in terms or in relation with Jesus and his life and ministry. Romans 10.4 says that Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. The New American Standard Version of that same verse says Christ is the end, literally the fulfillment, the, the telos, the goal of everything that the law commanded. He is the end and the fulfillment of righteousness for everyone who believes. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Powerful. Jesus is the final, unrepeatable sacrifice for sins. The entire book of Hebrews is a compilation of all of the ways that Jesus fulfills not only the function and the role of the Old Testament priest, but all of the commands and, and, and uh, standards and statutes that God had put in place. And Hebrews 9.12 tells us that Jesus is the final, unrepeatable sacrifice for sins. It says, He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus is the high priest who never needs to be replaced. Hebrews 7, 23-25, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Therefore he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him because he lives to intercede with God on their behalf. Powerful. Jesus offers himself versus animal sacrifices, Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. 
but when Christ appeared as the high priest over all of the good things that have come, he entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. And with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Well, Jesus secures God's eternal favor because Jesus is God. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to have any doubts. How does God see me? How does God accept me? We, we have only to look at Jesus. God accepts me. God loves me. God welcomes me as his child because of what Jesus has done. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to doubt that. I don't have to question that. Hebrews 5, 9. And having been made perfect or having, rather, shown his perfection, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And then this eternal salvation is expressed and spelled out beautifully in Hebrews 7, verse 25, where it says, Therefore he, meaning Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And... That reminds us that salvation is not just past tense, but it's past, present, and future, and we forget that. Past salvation means I'm justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. God has washed me. He has cleansed me from the guilt and the shame and the consequences of my sin. Sanctification is present salvation. Daily, he is cleansing us. He is washing us. He is purifying us. He is renewing us. He is transforming us. And future salvation is glorification. One day in the twinkling of an eye, when the trumpet sounds, we will rise and we will meet him in the sky and we will be like him for we will see him just as he is. We will be transformed into his perfect image. You know, Paul reminds us of that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face are beholding as in the mirror the glory of God and we're being transformed from glory to glory. It's a process that has begun right now and it'll be completed and consummated with the return of Jesus. Powerful, powerful stuff. So all of this leads to Hebrews chapter 4 and the invitation that's extended to us. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tested and tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and find mercy and help in our time of need. That's the invitation that's extended to us. All of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the answer, the fulfillment of everything that the high priest foreshadowed in the Old Testament and all that God required through his holy standard 
and holy law, the Ten Commandments and all of the other laws. Jesus fulfills that for us. Paul says in Galatians, the law was a schoolmaster. Literally, the servant, the household servant that took the kids to school. The law was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The purpose of the law is not like the Pharisees to go, oh yeah, I can do that, and I can do it better than other people. I may not do it perfectly, but at least I can do it better than Bill or Sally. Jesus says, no, it's not about whether you can do it better than other people. It's whether you can do it as good as me. The purpose of the law is to say, I am in deep weeds. (laughs) I cannot do it. I need a Savior. I need someone to save me from my sin and give me new life, and that is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of that. I spoke with, uh, well, uh, my family went out to Santa Barbara this week, and my mom celebrated her 83rd birthday, which is awesome since it's been like five years since her heart surgery, and she's just going strong with no end in sight. And she was telling us about a few weeks ago when they were at Hume Lake, because that's their heaven. They go there every year and listen to the speakers. And she said there was a speaker from Africa who's now planting churches in Brea, California, down south. And among other things, he said that growing up playing cricket, it was hard for him to understand baseball. And he used this cute illustration. He said he noticed that when the guys were playing baseball, somebody would miss the ball, and they'd be like, oh, my bad. And everybody else would say, no, you good. And he's like, what's going on there? And they would say, well, what, what that person is, they're acknowledging and confessing that they screwed up. And everybody else, the rest of the team, is affirming them and saying, no, you're good. It's okay. Pick up, pick up the level, play well. And, and this pastor was saying in his sermons, that's exactly God and what it means to sanctify us. When we confess... Jesus is there to say, no, you're good because of the cross and because of my blood. So what is our response to all of this? I would say quite simply, the first thing we need to do is we need to come to Jesus. We need to come to Jesus. We need to accept him as the answer. And I've said this hundreds of times, and I'll say it until I die. If there were any other way to God except Jesus, then why the cross? Why did Jesus suffer and die? On our behalf. If there were other roads that lead to God, what a waste. And don't you think God in human flesh would know if there were other ways? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Through Jesus Christ. First of all, we need to come to Jesus. Secondly, we need to acknowledge and confess our sin. And no passage of Scripture says that better or puts it more plainly, in my, in my opinion, than 1 John. 1 John says that if we deny that we have sin, we make God a liar, and His truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I've said this before, but I love the word for confess in the Greek. It's the word homologia. Hama means same. Logia is the word. And Jesus is the word. And so our common confession of faith is the word. It's Jesus. Every time we confess, we are not just saying, I screwed up, I blew it. But we are saying Jesus is the answer. 
Jesus is the answer. He's the answer for my sin. He's the answer for your sin. He is the path back to God. He is the one that restores us. He is the one that reconciles us back into relationship with God. He is the one who makes us a new creation. Confessing and acknowledging. And then finally, accepting Jesus as our sacrifice for sin. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. How do you want to, how can you become righteous? How can I become righteous? By allowing Jesus to dress us in his righteousness. That, that hymn we sing, I say this all the time, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. The only way to stand before the throne of God one day is not dressed in your own good deeds and good intentions, but it's dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because nothing else will cut it. Nothing else will stand the test. I want to close with this thought. There's a really interesting and powerful verse in Hebrews 12, verse 14. It says, Pursue peace with all people, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Sanctification is essential. It's indispensable for having new life and being reconciled with God, but it's also essential to the gospel. Unless we allow God to sanctify us, the world will never see the Lord. They'll only see us. They'll see our hypocrisy. They'll see our polluted, defiled, broken lives. They'll never see him. And so pursue peace with all people and the sanctification without which no one will ever see the Lord. And I love what Francis Chan says about this in his book, Multiply, Disciples Making Disciples. He says, if you wait until all of your own issues are gone before helping others, it will never happen. This is a trap that millions have fallen into, not realizing that our own sanctification happens as we minister to others. We have this faulty conception that one day when I'm perfect, one day when I got all my stuff together, then God can use me in a powerful way for his kingdom and his glory. And many of you have waited to be used by God or have dared not even to try and be used by God because you feel so beat up and you feel so broken and so flawed. And I'm here to tell you that day is never coming. God is using you in the midst of your brokenness and sinfulness to affirm that it was never about you or me to begin with. It was always about him. And he sanctifies us in the process of using us. And so we are to get off out of our seats and to join the mission of pointing people to Jesus.